I'm going to talk to you about a parable today. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Jesus loved parables. He did. He taught in parables. Now we only have, we only have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four Gospels. We only have 48 parables. 48 is not a lot. He taught a lot more than that. We do not have all the parables Jesus taught. We have the parables that we need to know. The Bible is a, a book of need to know. It's not everything Jesus did or everything the apostles did or all the miracles that happened. There are, I believe there are 36 recorded miracles in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not all the miracles. <clears throat> That's just a few of them. At John chapter 21, 25, I get my information, and there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. In other words, that's a literary, it's called a tool of literary exaggeration. The world couldn't contain them. What he's saying is there'd be a lot of them. Jesus did a whole lot of things in the three and a half years that he ministered, a lot of places that are, and things are not recorded because not for our benefit. Uh, we have in the Bible the things that will benefit you and help you uh, what are parables? Parables are horribly abused. Uh, they're, they're not meant, every little thing in a parable is not necessarily meant to teach a doctrine. Usually a parable can be summarized by one sentence. Summarized by So the parable had, if you've ever written a thesis, if you've ever written a paper at school, you have a thesis statement, right? You have a thesis statement. Now what that thesis statement is, is what, here's what I'm going to shoot for in this paper. All these, you know, 75 pages I write, and all this bibliography I put down, and all these other things only really come down to one sentence. Now, if you don't do that, you don't have a good paper. You learn very quickly in school when you write papers, that's uh, the way to do it. You want one sentence. So when you leave here today, you should be able to summarize what I've said in one sentence. And on the way home, when your wife says, honey, wasn't that a good sermon? And you say, oh, yes, I really like that sermon. And she says, well, what was, it, what was it about? And you go, uh, I think he talked about the Bible. You'll be able to <clears throat> verbalize what I said here today in one sentence, take it home with you and help you. Uh, parables are earthly stories that are true to normal life. The parables that Jesus taught were earthly stories about things that happened that these people knew about. They were true to life of the people that they were told to. Um, they have, however, a heavenly and a spiritual truth. So they're an earthly illustration of a heavenly truth. You got that? An earthly illustration of a heavenly truth. Uh, because why, is, why would you use parables to teach? Why would we use parables? Because we learn in series. What I mean by that is we learn from the known to the unknown. All teaching that I know of goes from the known to the unknown. First grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. You, what you're doing is first grade, 
teaches them, and then second grade builds on what they learned and what they knew in first grade, and then second, third grade builds on what they learned in first and second grade. Fourth, third grade, fourth grade builds on what they learned in one, two, three, and it, so on, so on, so on. That's why education is in series. It's first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. You are building a mountain of information, data, what you want to call it, in the individual that is known. And from the known, they can jump off and learn the unknown. I'm going to give you an illustration about that. The parable of the sower. Most of you that read the Bible remember the parable of the sower, Jesus, Matthew 13, a sower went out to sow. Now, that was something they all saw. Now, I know you people would not. Probably nobody in this room has seen somebody sow seed the way they did in the first century. The way they did in the first century, they had a bag with a seed on it, and they would walk, and they would take a hand, and they would, they would cast it out under their left hand and their right hand as they walked along this path and then in a prepared soil. For actually, according to the parable of, sower, uh, parable of the sower, there were four different kinds of soil. Now, everybody knew about how the seed was sown to the people he was talking to. Everybody knew that there were four different kinds of soil. They knew about the path. They knew about the area of the rocks. They knew about the thorns that would come up, and then they knew also about the good ground where the actual seed would grow and bear fruit. So they knew that out of that would only come uh, a one, one of those grounds would, would bear fruit. Well, what they didn't know is Jesus uh, attached something spiritually to them and, and basically he said the seed is the word of God. And the soil are your hearts. In other words, out of this room, he would say, there are four different kinds of soil. There's four different kinds of reception of the Bible. I hope not in this room. I hope we don't have the pathway. I hope we don't have uh, the, the stony ground or even really the, the area where weeds would come up and consume it. I hope all of you are the good ground, you know, the, the black earth, soft dirt, ready to receive the word of God and let it grow in your heart. But the truth of the matter is, usually in a group of people, there are different kinds of soil. And Jesus, so Jesus taught them from what they knew, which was about the sower and the soil, to what they did not know was that there was about four different ways the word of God is received among men. And so consequently, the parable of the sower taught them something from the known to the unknown. Okay? And so it's with this understanding that I want to approach uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. If you have it in your Bible, I want to read it, read it and we'll go on. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You could call that his thesis statement. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee, and they were the most respected, most religiously zealous of all the people in Israel at the time. Many of those men were gifted and had the entire Old Testament memorized, word perfect. They were very detailed people. And the other, a publican. Mm, A publican. That's what we would consider a tax collector, IRS guy. Now, if you work for the IRS in this room, do not tell me. But 
the IRS, somebody's got to work for them, right? So they are, but the publican back in that day, the IRS guy, the publican back in that day, oh my, 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 they were bad people. They would, uh, Rome said, this is, this is the percentage I want you to collect. Anything above that you can keep. Now what do you think that did to the publican? He would go in and act more than what they really should pay because he wanted to, you know, pad his own wallet. And they were hated. And oftentimes a publican was a Jew. A Jew. A traitor to the Israel that had was working for Rome, which was the occupational force of the day. You can just imagine the animosity that flowed uh, to somebody that was a publican. So when Jesus, in making this parable, it's interesting, he uses the two extremes of the society. The Pharisee, which everybody looked up to and said, boy, if anybody's going to heaven, if anybody is pleasing God, it is that Pharisee. Those Pharisees, wow. Then they would look to the publican and say, if anybody's going to hell, if anybody's going to rot in hell and deserves to go there, and we won't shed a tear if they go there, we'll be this publican. So he uses these two people as extremes in this parable. And they said, the Pharisee, they both, they both go into the temple. And the Pharisee stood and prayed. They both go into the temple and they both pray. They got that in common. The Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. In other words, basically in his quiet prayer in his heart. He says, God, I thank thee that I'm not as, and he may have grabbed his shirt, as other men. I'm not like these extortioners. Now, I wonder who he was speaking of, because that was one of the sins of the publicans for sure. I am not unjust. I'm not like these adulterers, as he began to look around, and or even as this publican, as he laid his eyes on the publican. He said, Lord, you know, God, I fast twice a week. Twice a week, not once, twice a week. I give tithes of all. Not, he don't cheat. He don't, he don't, he's not fuzzy. He says, I tithe of everything. All that I give, I tithe. Faithful. And then Jesus went to the publican, verse 13. He says, the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven. He kept looking to the ground, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then, the application in the next verse. I tell you, this man went down to his house, that's the one he just got done talking about, the publican, justified, rather than the other, which was the Pharisee. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? 
He said, Brother Bill, nobody, nobody that I've ever known is like the Pharisee. I've known thousands, literally thousands of them. I've known thousands of people that are trusting in themselves that they are righteous. And in doing that, despise the old whore and the prostitute and the drug dealer and the tax collector. Thousands. Let me go over four things I noticed about the Pharisee. He had a few things wrong. First of all, the Pharisee thought he was humble. He had mistaken humility. God, I'm glad I'm not like other men, which other men are proud. You know, other men are, they're wrong, but hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm right with you, God. Why? Oh, I do a lot of good stuff. I do a lot of good stuff. God, I thank thee that I'm not like these other men. Somehow this man thought he had an in with God. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 said, Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God is not a respecter of persons. One thing we need to understand about God, the Bible is very clear about God, that he does not favor one above another when it comes to salvation. There is not a respecter of persons. You're not a blue blood. You're just a red blood. You're not, you're not a better sinner, medium sinner. Everybody's a sinner. All have sinned come short of the glory of God. We're on a level playing field with God. God loves the poor, he loves the rich, he loves the just, he loves the unjust, he loves the stripper, he loves the virgin, he loves the drunk, and he loves the teetotaler. I thought the Bible said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That's everybody. That's all those people and more that I've named. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, I believe that's everybody, potentially, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The ground around the cross is level ground. All who come to Jesus stand on the same level with God. So the Pharisee had a mistaken humility. God forbid this morning that you're in the sound of my voice, whether on a podcast or on the internet somewhere or here at Gospel Baptist Church, and somehow you believe you have an end with God because of this or that or the other thing. I've heard people, I was born a Christian. Oh my, my, I want to flip I want to do, you ever see a guy do a flip, a total flip, where they flip and they land on their feet? I want to do that right now. But I can't do it. I just want to flip when people say that. I was born a Christian. Now, they say it, and I look, I look at their face very carefully when they say that. By the way, hello, Chris. Good to see you. 
I, I want to say that very carefully because when I, when I ask them whether they, if they died, they'd go to heaven, they'd say, well, I was born a Christian. You get the similarity? I thank thee, God, I'm not as other men, not born into Christianity, didn't know nothing about God, the heathen out there. I was born a Christian. And then I get to say, nobody was born a Christian. You're born a heathen. You're born a sinner. You're born with a wicked nature that'll send you to hell and eternally separate you from God. That's what the book says. Where are you getting your information? That's what I'd like to say and often have said. So he thought he was humble when he wasn't. He was actually proud. You know, an interesting irony of life is that humble people think they're proud and proud people think they're humble. Have you ever seen that? I thank thee, God, I'm not as other men. He thought he was humble. Here he was being proud. Isn't that wild? That's a blindness, isn't it? It's a blindness. The second thing I noticed about the Pharisee, he had a mistaken view of, of God's view of sin. He had a mistaken view of God's view for sin. He said these extortioners, these unjust, these adulterers, even as a publican, what he did not understand is James chapter 2, verse 1, where God says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Man, you ought to write, you ought to write that down. You ought to memorize that. You ought to put that on the back of your hand. Let me say this. When you stand before God, if you've offended in one point, you're guilty of all breaking the entire law. How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? How many times you got to lie to be a liar? How many times you got to lust to be an adulterer? How, I mean, come on, be honest. We got to be honest with ourselves on this, right? Wow. It's something else. Isaiah, evidently, they haven't read Isaiah 64, 6, where it says, but we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy Rags, the word filthy is putrid. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Isaiah 64, 6. So I don't have to just say in the New Testament, both Old and New Testament teaching in the Bible is, you're born a sinner, unable to save yourself. And you're not just a sinner, you're a wicked sinner. Brother, when somebody gets saved, I want to hear them say, I'm a wicked sinner and need to be saved. You, you can't overdo it. I don't like to hear somebody say, well, it wasn't too bad. I'm not, as, I'm not quite as bad as Gillespie, but I still need to be saved. I don't think you can get it. Like that Pharisee, he, you still have pride about it. Thirdly, I notice he was mistaken in comparing himself with others, the publican, to elevate his own righteousness. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this. For we dare not make ourselves of the number, nor compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. There's a syndrome 
the more guilty one becomes, the more it relieves them and relieves the pressure of that guilt by finding one or someone else that is worse than them and then comparing themselves to them. I'm glad I'm not as an extortioner. Why did he do that? Because he has some guilt. You know, you know yourself. Come on. You know yourself. You know you're not perfect. You know you sin. And so he gets in there and he's trying to press God with his speech. I know all these people around me here. He's trying to find somebody that's worse than him so he can make himself feel better. That's a syndrome that I see happen all the time. I wanted to do something bad. So I'd come to my mother and say, all my friends are doing it. And she'd say, if they jumped off a cliff, would you follow them? And what was your answer? Sure you would. Because you're stupid. My mother probably thought she had birthed some educably slow child, which she had. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by that. It's a comparing thing. Take a white sheep. My wife went to Ireland. Went to, actually, my wife, my wife has been all over the place because she's the most pampered woman in this whole church. I mean, I've let her go over. Uh, she's gone. I don't even want to tell you. She's been overseas. She's been on cruises. She's been without me because I don't want to go. So she goes with another woman in the church. I won't name her. And they go out and spend our, my money. But anyways, uh, now she spends her own money. But they've been to Ireland, and they've seen the, the, the big thing that enthralled her about Ireland was the sheep. You know, the little, she always wanted to find a little lamb, you know. And, oh, I want to find a little lamb. And, and they have beautiful green, beautiful deep green pastures, and they got these white sheep. And, and if you take that white sheep and you put them against that green, that dark green pasture, that sheep looks white. That sheep looks clean. That sheep is, woo, just looks great. But then in a few minutes, have four inches of snowfall and cover all that with snow. And then you look at the sheep, and he looks dingy, yellowish, and soiled. Why? Because the background to which the sheep is compared. When you stand before God, and I stand before God, and the hookers and the criminals and the murderers and the rapists and the child molesters and everybody else stands before God, they will be compared to the righteousness of God. You will not be compared with me. You will not be compared with Brother Irvine. You will not be compared with brother with the IRS guy. Glenn is your name, right? I got it. You'll not be compared with Jim Ingersoll. I got your name. You're not going to be compared with uh, uh, Brother uh, John Perez back there. You're not going to be compared with Bob Carney. Bob said, don't mention me. That's why I am. I'm like a teenager, brother. You don't want me to do something. Don't tell me not to do it. You and I are being compared with the righteousness of God, the white snow. 
And I don't care how cleaned up the Pharisee thought he was and how, and honestly, he probably did live, live quite an astute life of discipline and memory and Bible memory. And, and I don't doubt that he gave tithes of all that he had. I don't doubt that he fasted twice a week. And I'm not saying the things he did were bad things. What made them bad was he was using them to justify himself before God. And that's what was bad. The fourth thing I noticed about the Pharisee, he was mistaken as to what it took to be forgiven of sin. He brought up some works that he had done or was doing and decided he would be doing in the rest of his life. The Bible simply says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. What is counted for righteousness? His faith. But him that worketh not, but believeth. That doesn't mean you don't work for God after you get saved, but that means to get saved, it's not going to be by works. You can't do it. Also says in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of water and regeneration of the Holy Ghost. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for grace you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so many other places of scripture from front to back, side to side. You cannot be saved by your good works, by your good deeds. But if you get born from above, you will work. If you get saved, you will tithe because you want to, not because you have to. You will come to the house of God, not because you have to, but because you want to. Let me say this. If you give to God begrudgingly and you come to his house begrudgingly and you, you witness or pass out tracts begrudgingly, I would, check my, I would check my heart before God to see that I ever had humbled myself, repented, and trusted him as my Savior. Because born-again people have the Holy Spirit within them, which is God Almighty, and he's the one that impels you to righteousness. I'm compelled to serve God. I get to do it. But I can't put that up before God before I get saved. I, get, I need to repent, amen? Jesus said, Luke chapter 13, verse, I think it's verse 3 and verse 5, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. By the repentance, you're not laughing when you repent, amen? You're not going around laughing, taking it lightly. You're serious. When you repent, you have some remorse involved in it. I preach a sermon called, Where's the Remorse Gone? Where have the tears gone about being saved? Brother, it brings me to tears when I think about me being saved, where's your remorse at? Where's your tender heart before God? So those are four things that the Pharisee did wrong. And let's talk about the public and what he did right. First of all, he had real humility. He did. He's standing afar off. He didn't feel he was worried to even come in the presence of the, of the temple. He was ashamed of himself when he walked in. People come to me and say, preacher, I come to church, I feel uncomfortable. That's great, that's good, that's wonderful. Because if you feel uncomfortable, pretty soon you'll get comfortable. Because you'll repent and you'll get right in areas that God's making you uncomfortable on. Does that make sense to you? Secondly, the, the, oh, the old publican, 
Uh, he had godly sorrow over his sin. He smote himself on the breast. The Bible says godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. That's your order. Godly sorrow, repentance, salvation, not to be repented of. And God begins to cause you to be sorry for your sin. Understand you, you sinned against a loving God that has given him only begotten son for your salvation, and you want to have that forgiveness from him, you begin to get sorrowful. That causes a sense, I'm willing to turn from my wickedness, and when you turn from your wickedness, you turn to God. See, it's, it's man, you're turning from something to something. God doesn't want you to quit drinking, smoking, cast, uh, cussing, and acting ugly just because he wants you to quit drinking, smoking, cussing, and acting ugly. He wants you to turn from those things to him. God replaces the things that you give up of this world with better things. I'm 69 years old. And I'm telling you what, I have lately just been rejoicing in God. I'm happy, happy, happy today that I told that I had 18 years old bow my knee and my heart with, with godly sorrow and repentance and faith in Christ and ask him to help me and to save me and to, and to come to me. And I was an old, rebellious, wicked, betraying young man that had no business even being saved or even being allowed in the presence of God. But man, life has been good. I told my wife, we got a life of no regrets. Now, does that mean I've never done anything I don't regret? No. But generally speaking, a life of no regret. It's a beautiful thing. There were some roses bloomed at my house the other day. I got all kinds of flowers at my house. Some roses bloomed. They were blood red roses. And I said, you know, God made those roses for you and I, Kathy. We got these Chinese orchid tree, which is fabulous, just beautiful, deep, dark blooms, especially if you put blooms special on it. And you get deep, dark blooms. And man, I, I looked at them. I said, you know, God made those blooms just for us, Kathy. And I walk around my property and I say, look, God made that just for us. And God made these things. See, because when you get in harmony with God and have your sins forgiven, another world opens up. He takes the scales off of your eyes so that you can see what this thing's about. Third thing I see with a publican, he understood what it took to get saved. The Bible says that man went to his house, Jesus said, that man went to his house justified, 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 I'm happy in Jesus today. That's all I know of that song. I'm justified by his grace through redemption is in Christ Jesus. Justified means declared not guilty. What? It means declared not guilty. But it's bigger than that. It means being declared not guilty and then given the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't just declare me not guilty and leave me empty. He gives me his righteousness. Our brother this morning in Sunday school class was trying to illustrate how we're in Christ Jesus. Uh, we are. He puts us in Christ just like Noah and his kids and family went into the ark. Uh, they had, By the way, they willingly went into the ark. God honors your choice, your freedom of, your freedom of choice, your volition. And they willingly, no one, his family went into the ark, but brother, they didn't seal themselves into that. God shut the door and God sealed it. The provision of the ark was salvation 
And God sealed it with the, his own hand. We're sealed under the day of redemption, the Bible says. Oh, my, it's good. IRS guy knew what it was. He maybe didn't consciously know, but he came before God, beat his chest, wouldn't look up. God be merciful to me, a sinner. You want to be saved this morning? You want to have your sins all forgiven this morning? Act like that old publican. Be ashamed of the life you've lived. Be ashamed of it. Nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with good, good old-fashioned shame. We should be ashamed of some things we've done, things we've said. Things we've seen. We should be. We should have a godly sorrow, a shame. To the place where you're not even comfortable going to a place called the church or house of God. And yet if you come before him and cry out this morning, God be merciful to me a sinner. And you're crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ who, who gave himself for you, who died on the old rugged cross and was, risen, was raised from the dead the third day. Purchase your salvation. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I don't preach on salvation like I am this morning too often. Most of my preaching is edification and building up those that are already saved so that they'll go out and preach to others about how to be saved. If you've come in here this morning without Christ or you're listening to me without Christ, why don't you bow your head in simple childlike faith and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And no question about that, unable to save myself by any amount of good works because I can't undo anything I've ever done. And I believe, Jesus, you're the Savior, the child, you're the, you're the uh, Christ, the Son of the living God that you indeed died for my sins and buried and rose again the third day. And I now cry out, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. When you do that, and if you do it with your heart, Jesus, as Jesus said about that public, and I could say about you, you'll go back to your house justified. Declared not guilty of every sin you've ever committed or will commit. You'll be, your name is put in the Lamb's book of life. You're, you're baptized into the body of Christ. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And eventually you'll be adopted. That means given a new body like in his glorious body as a child of God. But positionally it's a done deal, as our brother said this morning. Practically it's playing its way out. Now if you're here this morning and don't know Christ, why don't you say yes to him? Would there be a better time and a better place to do it? There won't be. This is the moment. If everybody could bow their head for a moment, if you would. Nobody's looking around. I'm not trying to embarrass you at all. I'm not trying to put you on a spot at all. I'm trying to help you solidify the decision you made. If you prayed that simple childlike prayer that I just prayed, would you be willing to raise your hand and say, Brother Bill, Pray for me that I follow through and do that which would I cried out to God this morning for. Anybody in here this morning that says, Brother Bill, I prayed that. Yes, God bless you, brother. Amen. Anybody else? I prayed that little simple childlike prayer. The Bible said the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that repenteth more than the 99 Christians 
who get right with God. We can help you learn what it is to be saved. We want to know, make yourself known to us. We'll help you. Father, I pray for that one dear soul that raised his hand. There may be some others that didn't. I pray that, Lord God, you'd birth him from above. You'd show him your hand. Thank you for allowing us to see what it means to be saved, born from above. Anoint us. Help us to be witnesses everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida, also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.